You went for it. It was good. I didn't. I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I didn't mean to go for it. I just as the Dutch in me, you know, <laughs> it just flows through my veins. Oh, yeah. So Dutch. Yeah. So much Dutch just oozing out of you. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This summer, we at ICS are exploring a number of possible ways to connect with folks at a distance. This podcast is one of those ways, and it's going to look just a little different for the next few months. Similarly, ICS's Summer Online Learning Initiative is another way we're looking to connect with you by offering a number of exciting ICS courses at a distance. So we're going to spend the summer talking to our senior members and course leaders about the kinds of conversations you could have if you were to take one of these courses for yourself. Today, we're joined by Adrienne Dengerink Chaplin, who will be telling us about her upcoming course called Faith in Art, Spirituality and Lived Experience, which explores various intersections between faith and art, spirituality and embodiment. This will be a six-week all-online course taking place from June 16th to July 23rd. So here's a glimpse of Faith in Art. Critical Faith, we have spent the past semester inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses to give us a sort of snapshot into the rhythm of life at ICS. For the summer, we plan to continue on this path by highlighting some of our new online courses, which will be taking place over the next few months. Today, we're joined by Adrian Dengarink Chaplin, an ICS alumna and former ICS senior member in philosophical aesthetics. Currently, Adrienne is a visiting research fellow at King's College London and is joining us from her home in the UK. Starting on June 16th, Adrienne will be teaching a six-week all-online course called Faith in Art, Spirituality, and Lived Experience. For those interested, registrations are open, and in preparation for this course, we wanted to give you a sneak peek, an idea of what this course will look like and why it matters. So welcome, Adrienne. We're very excited to have you join us today. 
Thank you so much, Danielle. Pleasure to be here. So uh, perhaps by way of introduction, I could just ask you uh, for a bit of brief autobiographical background. So the course that you're offering, it circles around two particular key topics in theological aesthetics and contemporary art. So one of those is embodiment or lived human experience uh, on the one hand, and then spirituality or transcendence on the other. So I'm wondering if you could first tell us how or why you came to be interested in these topics yourself uh, and highlight in doing so who are some key figures for you in how you approach these topics. Um, I've been interested in these topics for a very long time because they go to the heart of so many discussions about art and faith um, or art and religion. You could say that these terms point to two main strands of thinking about the arts in relation to faith. Um, one looks at art primarily as, as a means to transcend the world we live in, with all its flaws and failings and suffering and, and mundane routines, and, and sees it as a bridge to a higher spiritual world of meaning and truth and beauty and fulfillment. And, and the other sees it primarily as a means to take a closer look at the world, to heighten our senses and help us notice things we have not noticed before. Um, so in other words, rather than taking us away from this world, it seeks a more intimate contact with it. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the first way of looking can be found mainly amongst scholars working in the realm of theological aesthetics. Um, after all, theologians seek a deeper understanding of God and transcendence, um, whereas the second is more prominent in philosophical aesthetics, both Christian and, and non-Christian. Um, so what I'm trying to do in this particular course is to bring these two discourses into conversation with each other in a way that is mutually illuminating and enriching, but also able to point out certain weaknesses in each of them. So, so my aim is to look uh, and to, to look uh, at some of the underlying assumptions of these positions with a view to developing a critical biblical framework to understand the nature and role of art in, in, a, in a more informed way. Um, so, so you asked me about sources, um, well, um, which have inspired me. Well, some appear uh, in the course. So, in in the course, we will be looking at either in the class or through further reading at uh, at a quite a wide range of literature. Uh, some of which is written by theologians, some by art historians, some by practicing artists, some by secular philosophers, some by Christian philosophers. And to give you some examples, um, in the course we will read some chapters by art historians Jonathan Anderson and William Dearness and Mark Cheatham. Some works by theologians would include the writings of Ben Korsh, uh, George Patterson, Jeremy Beckby, Mark Taylor, Rowan Williams, who is also very insightful. Um, Philosophical sources would include works by John Dewey, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, Mark Johnson, and, and these three have also often um, informed my, my own work. 
uh, amongst Christian philosophers, we will read sections from um, Calvin Seerveld, who has written extensively on art and the aesthetic dimension of life in general. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Woltersdorf, who draws our attention to the fact that art is not just contemplation, not just for contemplation in a museum, but that it can fulfill many different roles in day-to-day -day life. Um, and also Lambert Zuidervaart, who is particularly insightful on the way art conveys uh, truth and meaning, and also how it plays a significant role in building an, an healthy democratic culture. So all, I think, very rich thinkers. I wanted to circle back to kind of the two strands that you mentioned right at the beginning, um, the kind of looking beyond strand and the like looking closer strand. So I'm wondering if you could maybe dive into those a bit more because those are those provide the th core themes for your course here. So embodiment kind of standing in for that like looking closer approach and then spirituality mm -hmm. as kind of this looking beyond or call to look beyond that you could correct mm -hmm. me on that in your definition but i'm wondering if you could flesh out what you understand by those terms um and then kind of how you see them working together whether you see them in tension or working together in some way <laughs> well that that is the million dollar question because what do these terms mean indeed um so one of the purposes of the course is precisely to have a, a closer look and and critically analyze what people mean when they use these terms um such as spiritual for instance in the uk about a fifth of people would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious so what people usually mean is that they do not believe in any organized religion or institutional church but at the same time, they want to make clear that that does not mean that they are hard-nosed mm -hmm. materialists or nihilists. Now, in art history, the term is sometimes used for religious art, but more commonly for any art that has a, a mysterious quality or seems to point to another reality behind the world of appearances. And, and that's especially the case in modern abstract art such as that by Kandinsky or Mondrian, where abstract shapes and forms are meant to lead us into another more real world, um, a world behind the visible world of objects and events. Now, in almost all cases, however, the word spiritual is pitted against the visible or the material or the physical um, in other words, there's often unspoken or, or sometimes spoken assumption that, that there are two worlds and often described in hierarchical terms like a lower physical, visible, material world that is touchable, measurable and temporal and, and a higher non-physical world that is immaterial, invisible, untouchable eternal, and so on. Now, I, I believe this particular notion of spirituality as a, as a denigration of the physical world deviates from a biblical understanding of spirituality, which is more about living a spirit-filled life in the world 
as we know it, uh, is more about being a faithful follower of Christ in our day-to-day -day journeys than about a desire to escape to another world. Now, even though many would agree with that, some theologians, ironically, when they start thinking about art, seem to fall back on this dualistic model, where they talk about art as a privileged entry point onto the spiritual. So in order to suggest an alternative way of approaching art, in the course we will look at the idea of the goodness of creation, obviously, including its physicality, but also down at the notion of embodiment and the role of the senses and feeling in understanding the world. Um, and the reason that that is important is that the senses are often considered to be deceptive tools in gaining truth. Um, and feelings are often considered even less reliable. However, you could say the senses are our first point of contact between us and the world and can often be trusted upon. So appearances do not necessarily deceive. And the same can be said of feelings. Now, people often think of feelings as, as very clearly defined and definable emotions, such as joy or sadness or anger. But most feelings are much more subtle and nuanced and, and also complex. So when I talk about embodiment, I mean to indicate that we are not disembodied souls or minds, but unified embodied beings who interact with our environment through the senses and through moving and breathing and smelling and touching and basically every other organically based involvement with the world. And as it turns out, art is particularly suited to capture some of those primary pre-reflective ways in which we engage with our world because the medium of art itself, the colors, the shapes, the sounds and so on, is equally fluid and nuanced. So it has a particular ability to capture those elusive feelings. So what I see, well, you've said this as well, that part of your goal in this course is to kind of un untangle some of these misconceptions between these dichotomies, right? So people think that, you know, the senses and, and the spiritual are distinct and mm -hmm. that art and faith are distinct. Right. So you're trying to undo those the thought that those things are separate. Um, so I'm wondering if you could, if you're looking kind of the state of art today and as well like the state of, you know, religion and spirituality, um, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about what you see art and faith having to say to each other or art and religion having to say to each other. Yeah, so I, I, I mentioned that there can be indeed a tension between these two strands of thinking. Um, but I also want to see how we can bring the best elements of each together. So on the one hand, it means to expose those dualistic frameworks, which inform some theological aesthetics, and to draw attention to the role of art as the articulation of lived experience. But Vice versa, it also means drawing the attention of some secular philosophers to the fact 
that lived experience include lived religious experience or experience mm -hmm. of faith. And uh, much contemporary philosophy of art and art theory seems to either overlook or deny or, or ignore precisely that. So what we want to emphasize is that religious experience is also not divorced from that embodied experience of day-to-day -day living, but, but an integral part of it. So I already hinted at some of the misconceptions, and, and we could also ask why some of those misconceptions actually happen, why they, mm -hmm. they are taking place. And well, we could say that since the emergence of modern art has been a growing divorce between art and religion, and although there are various exceptions, but there's another reason that since the Reformation, at least in the Protestant tradition, many Christians have not paid much attention to art um, or, or thought very negatively about it. And of course, one of the reasons behind that is the long-standing suspicion of images since the Reformation. Um, a lot of Pro Protestants never took the art serious and, and, um, and therefore also um, came late to it in, in, in thinking more positively and constructively about it. Now, now, happily, there's been a major cultural shift over the last, I would say, 30 to 40 mm. years even. And many Protestants, including those from evangelical backgrounds, now not only show an interest in the arts, but they're very actively involved in it. But sometimes their thinking has not always quite caught up with their enthusiasm. So ironically, after many decades of having had a very low and very negative view of the arts, Protestants now often adopt an almost uncritically high and often very romantic view of art uh, as a bridge to a transcendent reality and with the artist as a specially gifted visionary. And, and I think um, th there's a need to gain a better and perhaps more balanced and more down-to-earth understanding of the nature of art and, and the aesthetic dimension. Um, yeah, no, just a little bit about contemporary art today. Um, what, what is interesting is that there has, over the last couple of decades, we have actually witnessed signs of a remarkable rapprochement between, on the one hand, the world of faith and religion, and on the other, the world of contemporary art. And, and let me just give two examples of that. Um, first, there is a, a, a return of religion in contemporary art. And we will talk about that also in the course in one of our classes. And it's always become fashionable to do so. So after it was a complete taboo, it's now very trendy. So if you look at the work of artists like Anson Kiefer, Marina Abramovich, Bill Viola, the Chapman brothers, Tracy Yemen, Damien Hurst, David Mack, Chrysophili. Now, admittedly, these are all European artists, so I don't know how well known they are in North America, but they all include biblical or other religious references, uh, both provocatively, admittedly, but also exploratory. Um, so there's a genuine interest in religion, which reflects a general interest in religion in society at large. And so in our increasingly multicultural and multi-faith societies, 
religion is no longer something hidden or on the margin um, or practiced only in private. It has become more visible, more public. And in that sense, contemporary artists do what artists have always done throughout the ages. They imaginatively and empathetically explore and critique and celebrate and lament and subvert and transform what they encounter in the world. So they do exactly that with religious um, uh, phenomena. Now, the second example of a rapprochement between the world of faith and contemporary art is the growing patronage of art mm -hmm. by churches, um, especially in cathedrals. And again, I'm, I'm talking mainly from a European context, but I would imagine it's not all that much different yeah. in North America. Because many cathedrals now host exhibitions of large-scale works by well-known contemporary artists, um, sometimes dealing with traditional religious, religious subject matter, but also often dealing with issues of general human concern, um, and in particular issues of social justice, like mm -hmm. climate change or the refugee crisis or homelessness. So, um, yeah, I think that there, there are many very... Uh, positive developments, um, really, in, in that um, respect. Uh, I'm wondering if, in addition to those those artists and, that you've just mentioned, and by way of kind of bringing our conversation to a close, um, if you might also point our listeners, if there's one or two places, you might point them uh, to start reading up on these topics of faith and art and embodiment and spirituality? Hmm. Well, we're very lucky because there's a, a growing number of titles now of excellent books which uh, deal with these issues and, and, and many different voices as well. Um, one uh, book of essays, which I think might be a good start, um, is called Contemporary Art and the Church, A Conversation Between Two Worlds. It's edited by David Taylor and Taylor Worley, published by IVP in 2017. Um, what's interesting about that book is that it consists of the proceedings of a conference in 2015 by SIVA. Um, so it has the advantage that they were written for an audience of practicing artists. Um, so even though the, the authors are not always practicing artists, they, they would have address an audience. So that might be a good way to, to start. Um, if you want, if you're interested in theological aesthetics, that, that area, I can strongly recommend an, an, a reader which is edited by Jesus Thiessen, um, and it's called Theological Aesthetics, a Reader, published by Erkmans in 2003. But it has short excerpts from major authors since the early church up to the present time. So it gives you a very quick entry into the kinds of issues which are being discussed, including iconoclasm or spirituality. And, and so it, it's, it's, it has short introductions to particular periods, but it, it just gives you a lovely intro to the, the, the whole world of theological aesthetics. Um, well, and I cannot leave out Calvin Seerveld uh, at this stage, so good starting <laughs> points would be uh, normative aesthetics um, and redemptive art in society. 
um, both edited by John Cock in 2014. He did five or is it six books um, with um, essays by Cal, and I think he did a, a wonderful job. And uh, I think it's such a, a valuable source of having all these essays, which are in all these different places, put together. Uh, there's another book on art history as well, but I would start, I think, with these two. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? Um, well, my pleasure lately derives from intense displeasure, actually. Oh. Um, <laughs> no more. Or was occasion- occasioned by intense displeasure. I've just been having a lot of like kind of chronic muscle pain as mm. a result of like pandemic lifestyle. Lots of sitting, lots of computers, lots of like phone time, whatever. So kind of body just, you know, rebelling against the inactivity. Um, so I spent a few days just kind of intentionally trying to let my body chill out and recover. Um, which meant that I could not, you know, do anything with screens or really anything. I was just trying to like lie down and be calm. Mm -hmm. So I started listening to, or I decided to try listening to some audiobooks. Yep. So the audiobooks that I started listening to were the, what is it called? The Earth Sea Cycle by Ursula Le Guin. Nice. Which I had never read before and had had a few different people um, recommend at various times over the course of my life. So I figured now is the time. And usually I have a really hard time focusing on listening to audiobooks. Mm -hmm. They will usually send me to sleep. Mm. Uh, But this one hadn't and didn't. So I listened to the whole thing. And, And by now I'm on the third book of, I think there are five or six. Hmm. Um, and there well the version that I found was pretty fantastically narrated the guy is pretty great at like putting on different accents for different characters and stuff so he was he was very fun to listen to or is very fun to listen to Um, but like the stories themselves are they're young adult fiction I'm pretty sure hmm. Um, so you know not like super intense and whatever dark or anything although they do get kind of psychological which i was kind of surprised by like the whole first book is like this main character fighting his shadow and like trying to name you know name the evil for what it is and whatever and there's a lot of like naming elements to the story so anyway the the earth sea stories in audiobook form that that has been my pleasure hmm. um my pleasure is also audible. Um, so I was before I go to bed, I like to listen to um, articles read by people. Anyways, New Yorker articles in particular, usually. And one of them I read 
listened to a couple days ago was called Igor Levitt is like no other pianist. It, it is a profile of this German uh, pianist, Igor Levitt, who's only 32. Um, anyways, and it was pretty like fascinating, um, the profile, but the profile itself is not my pleasure. So after listening to this profile, I uh, listened to him on Spotify. And after listening to him on Spotify, I searched him on YouTube last night. And um, he plays a Tiny Desk concert, which if you go and watch, you'll have to forgive the mm. out-of-tune piano, uh, which is unfortunate. You get like the <laughs> best pianist in the world, and you give him an out-of-tune piano to play your concert, but whatever. Um <laughs> That's part of the charm of tiny desk concerts. Yeah, yes. It? Yeah. But anyways, they do a really good job of um filming him while he's playing. Uh and so like he plays the Moonlight Sonata, uh, the so-called Moonlight Sonata, mm. he says, to start. And um if you just like watch his hands, it's incredible. It's like they're so f- his motion is so fluid and the way that he uses like pinky finger uh is amazing and the um yeah it sounds amazing too so it's uh it's something to go check out uh igor levitt's tiny desk concert that's it for our show this week stick with us over the summer to hear more about the kinds of courses we'll be offering and to join the conversations for yourself If you'd like to learn more about this course, Faith in Art, Spirituality, and Lived Experience, taking place from June 16 to July 23rd, or if you'd like to register for the course, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, Thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or continue to find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends, please.